Jeff. Yeah, the comment I made to Jerry was I thought it was very interesting of how if you think, you know, John, the apostle, has only been dead less than 10 years, some of these writings, that the church has assumed the social structures of all the, uh, the Greek and Roman society around it. Because in, in that era, uh, what we would call 501c3s today, public interest, they were, they were organized. And so if, like, if you wanted to have a supper club, you would organize it in a way that would have a board of directors, and you would elect a single person who was in charge. And then you would hire the Konai servants to serve your dinner. And so you look at that, and the church is structured exactly like that. Uh, the temples were, were structured like that. Uh, if you wanted to do something like uh, feed the poor children, you would create a, a social structure exactly like that. So the church ends up in a very short amount of time re reflecting right. the society that's around it. We see the bishop, we see the presbyters, we see the deacons, and that's the structure that they borrowed from the culture in which they live. It was interesting, Jim Arnett, who, uh, the older Jim Arnett, that some of you know, Jim Arnett's father, uh, they go to Brentwood Hills, but he was here last week, and he made a similar comment to me uh, uh, after the assembly that uh, that certainly looks like what's happening in the early church, that they're adopting the structure that... Let me just comment on this. Side. In the New Testament, I think we have read the house churches and so forth that seem to be there is more like the synagogues than the structure that Jeff is talking about. Is that a fair... Oh, goodness, you're catching me off guard with that. I'm going to say, yes, I think it probably is, but I would really, Fletcher, for me, and I don't know if Leland wants to comment on that, I think there was a lot of similarity there. Uh, less, have, less structure than I'd what Jeff is yeah, talking about. This is becoming a much more uh, uh, involved detail, and I'm going to use the word hierarchical structure, very quickly than what we find in that period, it seems to me. But weren't these more Gentile than they were Jewish? So that yeah, at this point, yeah. these were being written. I have and more question. Hellenistic, maybe. Mm -hmm. Okay, this might have a bearing on what we talk about today and all. But is there any record of of how many, or if there were multiple house churches meeting? Because, and are the officials over all of the house yeah. churches in a city? Now I've never gotten clear on that. And, and I don't know that I'm clear on that. Leland may want to respond to it. I was listening to a lecture this morning, and I, I would love to put some of it up on the screen next week. My nephew was has on YouTube a lecture on Polycarp, and I was listening to it this morning. And he made a statement that I would have to ask him if he can prove to me that these bishops at this period of time were over numerous churches, which I think house gets it, house churches. And I, I, I was under a different impression than that. So I'm going, to, I'm going to ask him what his evidence is for, let's say, Polycarp and Smyrna being a bishop over a lot of different churches in Smyrna. Well, because it never says Poly Polycarp who was bishop of certain yeah. person's church. Right? Well, I think it's Eusebius that calls Polycarp a bishop. 
anyway, isn't it? In in uh, Philippians, I don't think he refers to himself as a bishop. No. In Philippians, <coughs> at least he doesn't. It, it certainly there's a transition, and early in the second century, I think it's more difficult to decide exactly what's going on. One thing I'm fairly sure of, there were no church buildings. So there, there wasn't a place that would seat 100 or 200. So they were meeting as house churches. And, you know, if, if there were 50 Christians or 100 Christians in Smyrna, then maybe it was two or three house churches. You know, you have to start making some guesses. And, and things develop um, third. I'm sorry. No, there's three more back there for sale. So maybe, maybe if, 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 if he took that one, then you'd have to buy another one. And I didn't know mine was in here. I thought mine. Somebody put their hand up over here, and I missed it out of the corner of my eye. Well, the fact that churches are referred to by a geographic area, like a city or a village, uh, versus, I guess, our tradition locally now is my Lowe's. Well, but though to me it implies that at the start there was one. Right. You know, in Smyrna there was a few Christians that met together and and then as some period of time goes on. It's interesting, I'll just make this comment. One of the questions I threw out in the email was about this. Anybody who saw the questions... In this letter from Polycarp to the church in Philippi, what does he say about the structure? It's a trick question. That makes us afraid to answer. He doesn't say anything. Well, that are with him, but you know, and and. People think it's interesting that this letter written, you know, into the beginning of the second century really doesn't say anything about the single bishop in Philippi and the presbyters or elders uh, reporting to him. Or, you know, so I, I guess he refers the to the deacons. And the and, but I guess one could assume either... Polycarp wasn't too concerned about this at that point. Or Philippi didn't have any problems with that. So they, they didn't, um, didn't have to give them any instruction on that point. But yeah, that was sort of a, a trick question. Um, Polycarp moves sort of quickly through the background. Next week, Jerry is going to talk about another document called the, the Martyrdom of Polycarp, which is actually a, also known as a letter from the church at Smyrna. And it has a lot of details about how Polycarp died. And I, I'll 
leave some of the background and whatever about Polycarp to, to next week as, as well. The short story is there's not a whole lot known about him personally. Um, one person puts his birth around 69, 70 or so, and uh, dying in 155. So you subtract those two numbers and it comes up that he's about 86 years old uh, when he was martyred. So lived to be a, a, quite an old gentleman for that, for that period of time. Um, Irenaeus, who was kind of a disciple of Polycarp, was taught by Polycarp, and then Eusebius, a couple hundred years later, both say that Polycarp was a disciple of John. So if John died in the 90s, then we've got about 20-some years of overlap. So Polycarp perhaps is a teenager in Ephesus, um, and then into his early 20s was able to sit at the feet of John and, and hear from John. Um, so, uh, and, and then um, Irenaeus, who was acquainted with Polycarp, um, was born about 25 years before Polycarp's death. So Irenaeus would have been a teenager and into his 20s in the last years of Polycarp's life. So I, I think it's interesting that we can do a direct connection, at least by tradition, from John through his teaching of Polycarp and through Polycarp his teaching of Irenaeus and we get into the, the latter part of the second century and we've got this direct connection. Right? Sort of interesting. Um, um, Irenaeus tells us that Polycarp wrote a number of letters to other people, to other churches. Unfortunately, the only one we've got is this letter to Philippi. The rest of them didn't, didn't survive. Um, this letter was written uh, as an answer to a request. Philippi sent a letter to Smyrna, to Polycarp, with some questions and that he replied to it, and we'll, we'll look at that in just a moment. A um, couple of things about the text, I, I, and I just thought this was sort of interesting. This is certainly not an area where I've got any expertise. The text <coughs> of this letter is really poorly preserved, and it becomes sort of a detective story of putting pieces together to get the entire letter. Um, most of what we've got are based on nine Greek manuscripts from the 11th century. So we're talking about nine or ten centuries later than the writing of the letter. Um, turns out all nine of these that were found were apparently copied from the same manuscript and uh, so they share all the same mistakes. They're, they're missing most of chapter 9 and then all of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Uh, and then there's a piece of the 
uh, what is it, the letter of Barnabas or something that seems to be inserted into it. Um, it it's as if pages got stuck together and they just kept copying and pulled things together. Um, Eusebius, so a couple hundred years after uh, Polycarp, has the rest of chapter 9 and 10, 11, 12, and almost all of 13. So you get those pieces from Eusebius in Greek. And then there's, there's Latin translations of, of the entire letter, which are in pretty good shape. They're complete. And it looks as though the Latin translations was translated from a Greek manuscript that's earlier than the one that was used here and looks to be more complete and, and is more reliable. And then there's a few verses quoted by other people in some Syriac documents. So you pull those in and confirm, and, and it's like putting a puzzle together uh, a few years later, about a few hundreds of years later. The, the copy of the text that I sent out, that we handed out, it, it turned out when I um, cut and pasted it, it was three pages, and, and it prints nicely if there's four. So I went ahead and left all the footnotes on there, and, and it, it's just mostly for fun. In the documents that we looked at earlier, I, I didn't go back and count, but I don't think any of them have the preponderance of footnotes that this letter does. And, and if you look at them, Polycarp is obviously familiar with the Old Testament. He's familiar with a number of the, the books that we um, call the New Testament that hadn't been collected yet at this time, but with, with a number of Paul's letters uh, and things. He's also very familiar with First Clement. And Richardson, who's the translator of this green book that um, we, we had gotten copies of that providing, he, in doing his translation, whenever he thinks it's a direct quote, he puts it in quotation marks. The quotation marks are not there in the original Greek, but, but Richardson has put them in. And I think, in a way, this document is difficult to read. There's so many quotes. And, and in fact, there was one person that I was reading that said, Polycarp really doesn't write very much. All that he does is copy. And, and quote other people, and, and that sort of stuck in, in my head. And you get a taste of that simply by looking at, what have we got, two and almost three pages of text. And we've got 100 and something, 105, 107 footnotes to quotations that are there. So he indeed was using a lot of scripture, using a lot of it. And like I say, that thought stuck in the back of my head, um, kind of as a negative thought. And then this week in some other personal reading, I was looking and I would encourage you to look. Look at the 15th chapter of Romans sometime. The first 
half, two-thirds of that chapter, Paul does the same thing. Paul is quoting Psalms and Isaiah and, and saying, and this one, this one, this one. And, and so there was certainly a good precedent for what Polycarp was doing, and he may have been familiar with Paul's letter to Romans. Um, here's here's a, a couple that I just picked out as, as examples. Uh, verses in Ephesians and in 1 Timothy that we're very familiar with. And then when you read Polycarp's letter um, to Philippians, it, I, I think to most of us it would really just sort of jump out that, that he is... Uh, <coughs> He's quoting from scripture that he's familiar with, knowing that you are saved by grace, not because of work, namely by the will of God through Jesus Christ. Uh, this is going to come up again the, the, a number of times from Philippians. I mean, from 1 Timothy. For we brought nothing into this world so that we can take nothing out of it. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Um, <coughs> so it's, it's an interesting read, I think, to think about you know, Polycarp's familiarity. Perhaps he had collected copies of some of the letters of Ephesian letter, Roman letter, Corinthians, the, the pastoral epistles as well. And those were on his mind when he was writing this answer back to, back to Philippi. Okay, unlike Jerry, I'll slow down and just see if there are comments. <laughs> Please don't feel like you're interrupting. Feel like you're helping. Yes. As you were talking, I was thinking about my 14-year-old uh, eighth grader. She had to do a project for uh, history, social studies, and it specifically said uh, for her not to copy and paste or to plagiarize any documents. In other words, the teacher was looking for original thought or concepts. And I put that in tension with, I think, Polycop's role at that time in the church was not to be original. I mean, we look for somebody to give original thoughts, a different take. We're looking for something different. But I think his primary role was to preserve what was. Uh, and so the fact that he so directly quotes so much of the scriptures, I think, is a validation of what his role was at that time, which was to carry on uh, the true teaching right, of the apostles. Um, I, I did think it was interesting, and it mentions it in the introduction in the book, that the person he doesn't seem to quote is John or at least the Gospel of John, which I thought was an interesting, if he was a disciple of, why did he not uh, quote from the Gospel of John in that it, almost everything else was a quote right. uh, in his letter. Yeah. Interesting question. Yes? Um, yeah, I was just going to add to that, because um, in I'm a student, so like in so many of our thesis, our professors encourage us to put in um, references as in like every other mm -hmm. citation to back up just to say and justify the point that we're making, even if it's like an original thought or an argument, and so that may be part of his issue too. Of he was not as expressive, and so it was just 
here's to the facts, here's what you need to do, but here's why. Uh, yeah. So sort of continuing the, the tradition and, and uh, writing perhaps directly from his own heart and not you know, intentionally copying what someone else had said, but his heart was filled with uh, what he had been taught. Leland? Yes. Uh, so uh, I'm far, far, far from an expert on you know, history of scripture and how the canon happened. I mean, it's very interesting to me, and I've spent a good bit of time you know, reading about certain things, certain aspects of it. But when I look at the list of footnotes, I find this pretty amazing uh, that at this point in time, first of all, he had access to all of these as one person at this point in time. And I guess I didn't realize that one generation removed from John, that a, an individual could have access to this this many different references of scripture. Yeah. Um, am I the only one who finds that? He had Google. He just Googled. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I was thinking, like, this looks like something that somebody would have gotten off the internet. And I, I mean, obviously, he had, uh, you know, collected or was, had some sort of access to a tremendous amount of what we now know as Bible. Yeah, uh, and I just looked on this list of all that's packed in there, and I just thought, wow, that this guy had a lot at his at his uh, at his disposal. I, I think n not as an an answer or an explanation, but as an observation. There, the early church was certainly a people of the book, the people of writings. There, there was a, a respect, a reverence, a, uh, a use in their lives. And, and that meant, I think, that they copied and shared and... Uh, uh, thank you. I mean, the, occasional, um, the occasional Old Testament reference certainly doesn't surprise me from a time, timeline yeah. perspective, but the number of like, Paul's letters mm -hmm. and all in, in the New Testament and, and so that it wouldn't be relegated to, you know, sometime after 11 o'clock when I got to it, I went ahead and went to the end of the letter and pulled up, that very thing is going on with this letter. That uh, Ignatius is telling the Philippians they're also making copies. And, and uh, <clears throat> there, there's an an earlier reference, uh, it's in chapter two or chapter three, to uh, Ignatius and a couple of other people. Um, one of them's named Zosimus, which looks vaguely familiar from uh, Brothers Karamazov, but uh, obviously not the same guy. Um, but uh, he 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 implies that they have moved to the next place, that they have, have met their goal. You think, well, they've been martyred, which was what Ignatius, uh, as, as we learned last week and the week before, was intending that would happen to him. Um, here, 
they're already collecting up the letters that Ignatius wrote, making a collection of them, and at the end here he says, um, let us have any reliable information that you know. So apparently this was written so close to that period of time when Ignatius was on his way to Rome to be martyred that, um, and, and remember from Smyrna, the next big stop would have been Philippi and then on to Rome. So, so the, uh, the Philippians would have seen Ignatius after Polycarp saw him a few weeks, a few days later. Um, but Ignatius is asking, do you have any confirmed information you know, uh, about Ignatius? So it's thought this letter may have been written that same year in, in 115, which was the, the date that was uh, sort of guessed for the, the letters of Ignatius. So anyhow, this was just to say already they're collecting letters and sending them, sending copies. One of them is going all the way back to Antioch in Syria, where Ignatius had been the bishop, to provide them with copies of information as well. But were they, were they considered as, sort of like we would say, uh, 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 they didn't have the status of the Torah or other at this point yet, did they? The, of being scripture, or did they? I, that word is not used. I, I, I would say other words, some of them. Commentaries or, or teaching, like a preacher would teach. But yet, did they have? Did any of them by this point have a status of of true God-given scripture? Look at twelve. Look at chapter twelve. Yeah, I don't think and I. I've noticed it's that. It's in uh, Latin and. I don't know Latin, the, uh, so it's not in <clears throat> Greek to even know, but it says in 12, he's saying, I know that you're well versed in the sacred scriptures, and then he goes on to quote Paul, doesn't he? Yes, but yeah, I, I'd have to pull them up. Some of these quotes from Paul Paul actually quotes out of Psalms. From the Old Testament, so, right. So, so and that one is one that, yeah. is, that does originate in the Old Testament. Yeah. So it, I think it's not clear. They certainly, like Clement's first letter, they had a lot of respect for it. They used it. They copied it. They sent it around to other people. Did they consider it Scripture. I think some people did, some people didn't, and in the end, they didn't. Uh, when the when the canon was put together, um, but it, it's it's not as clear. Uh, you know, it, it. I think we would say, you know, reprints of the Gospel Advocate from the 1920s or 1930s um, are valuable and interesting for at least partially, um, but clearly not inspired. Um, 
at this period of time? I, I would say not clear. I wonder if one reason he quotes so much, apparently from Paul, that a lot of his quotes come from Paul, is that Paul established this church in Philippi, and so that that would be a source of credibility to them. And so yeah. A lot of what he's quoting is from Yeah, him. And, and he talks about um, the time that Paul spent at Philippi right. and the things that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. So we're, if this was written in 115 and the letter to Philippi is written sometime in the 50s, then we're 60 years or so later. So um, by people, you know, in, in perhaps a couple of generations uh, of, of turnover of people in that church. <coughs> Well, time we've got left, let, let's look at the, the big piece in the middle of this letter. And at least one person who outlines or organizes it takes from chapter 3 through chapter 10 to be the, the central part of the letter, this reply that he's Replying, we don't have the letter that the Philippians wrote, so we don't know exactly what their question was. But um, Polycarp starts right out saying, I write these things about righteousness. So he's interested in answering some question uh, that, that they had or some questions uh, that have to do with with righteousness. <clears throat> oh, stop working. And uh, as we said earlier, the quote from from First Timothy, um, one would think one of the problems must have to do with an attitude toward money. It, it comes up, I didn't count, four or five times, the, the quotation. Uh, in chapter four, but the love of money is the beginning of all evils, knowing therefore that we brought nothing into the world. So this is the, the part of the letter that we quoted earlier. Let us arm ourselves with the weapons of righteousness. So again, righteousness is the counter to this love of money. Let us first of all teach ourselves to live by the commandments of the Lord. Uh, chapter 5, he talks about deacons a little bit. Deacons should be blameless before his righteousness, servants of God and Christ, not of men. And then not lovers of money pops up again there. One of the other questions that I um, threw out in the email has to do with, with 
the beginnings of various heresies that the church had to deal with. And I think we see here uh, in Polycarp's exhortation to them, uh, whosoever does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is antichrist. There was a growing heresy later in the second century known as uh, docetism. That, that word ring a bell um, comes from the Greek, what, dokeo, which is appearance. So that the heresy was that Christ was not really incarnate. He, he just appeared to be. He just looked like he was uh, a, a human being. A and Polycarp is apparently going after that teaching already here in 115 in, in, in Philippi. And the, uh, so he really was a person. He really did die on the cross. This was not just a, a, uh, an illusion. And that these people were also perhaps teaching that there was no resurrection and therefore no judgment after the resurrection. <clears throat> Please jump in, it'll help my voice. <coughs> Again, in chapter 9, I exhort all of you to be obedient to the word of righteousness and to exercise endurance. And here's where he mentions uh, Ignatius, Zosimus, and Rufus. Uh, and in Paul himself and the rest of the apostles. <coughs> So we go through those, that big section from chapters 3 through chapter 10, talking about righteousness, talking about the love of money. Chapter 11 is a very pointed comment at a person. And again, sort of think of you know, the background here. Is this the person who stirred up all of the trouble? that led to what was needed as a correction in chapters 3 through 10? Or was the, was the church heading in this direction that they shouldn't have been heading, and this, is, this person is an example uh, of the effect of that? One, I guess one doesn't know, cause and effect. But it's, it's interesting. It says, I have been exceedingly grieved on account of Valens, who was sometime a presbyter among you because he so forgot the office that was given him. So Valens was one of their elders. Uh, I warn you, therefore, to refrain from the love of money and be pure and true. So 
one would guess this balance must have had trouble with money, with, had trouble with the, the love of money. And he goes on, uh, if anyone does not refrain from the love of money, he will be defiled by idolatry and so be judged as if he were one of the heathen who are ignorant of the judgment of the Lord. Uh, then he gives the congregation, I, to me, sort of a compliment. However, I have neither observed nor heard of any such thing among you with whom blessed Paul labored and who were his epistles in the beginning. So apparently for the most part, the congregation was uh, not having this problem. He says about Paul, of, he, of you he was wont to boast in all the churches which at the time alone knew God. For we did not as yet know him. I am therefore very grieved indeed for that man and his wife. May the Lord grant them true repentance. And I, yeah, I, I didn't cut out the little section, but the next two or three verses, um, he takes a little bit of a different stance. But you too must be moderate in this matter and do not consider such persons as enemies, but reclaim them as suffering and straying members in order that you may save the whole body of you. For in doing this, you will edify yourselves. So to me, Polycarp takes a very sort of positive attitude toward this former elder and his wife who apparently had problems that had become problems for the church but he's saying um, we really want them to repent and and be restored the word restore is not there but well reclaim to reclaim them as suffering and straying members interesting um, interchange. Comment? I just wondered a little bit when I read the first time if, if the, this part about balance was the whole reason for the letter because like they wanted someone who was an authority from the outside to chime in and, and help because there may have been some because he starts off talking about righteousness and quoting Paul and quoting all these people and he gets to the part and he says you know it's blessed are the poor, and then he stops at the beginning of three and says, you know, you guys wanted me to write this. I'm doing this at your request, and, and I'm, I, you know, I'm going to quote Paul here and so forth. And then he goes right back into the love of money and four, finishes this little sermon and then says, you know, and then talks about balance. And I just wondered if this whole thing was him chiming in because someone wanted someone with authority from the outside to comment on what was going They wanted something to, if that makes sense. Certainly could be. It, it's 
it's interesting, I think, to take a letter like this and then try to build the rest of the story around it. We've actually run out of our allotted time. Um, next week, Jerry's going to talk about another document, the martyrdom of Polycarp. This is a description of the martyrdom of Polycarp, and it's the first description we have of an actual martyrdom event post the New Testament period. So you'll see in graphic detail exactly how Polycarp died. And I have, and I'll send out an email with some questions and a study guide, but I have some hard copy of the martyrdom of Polycarp that I'll hand out if you want them on the way out. And graphic detail even more than these yes, woodcuts from the Middle Ages. Thank you.